0: Hey, this is Dale Calvert. I'd like to welcome you to this session of the MLM Success Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to introduce you to a a friend of mine that passed, uh, Richard Nyhart. And I just want to kind of set this up. I am very, very excited to be sharing this audio with you, this information. And Many of you probably never heard of Richard Nyhart. You would have, uh, but you you haven't. And I'll just kind of set this up and just kind of share with you why I'm so excited to have found this audio. I will tell you up front that the the recording, the quality may not be great, but I will also encourage you to do whatever you have to do Turn it up, put your headphones on, take the headphones off, do whatever you have to do. Get out a notebook and take take notes because this is one that is phenomenal from a phenomenal, phenomenal speaker that I know you're going to enjoy. And I'm hoping uh, we can get the audio quality suitable for you because the information is super, super impactful. Uh, but it was 1995 November, uh, about a year and a, half, a year and a month or so before that, uh, I had resigned my position with uh, National Safety Associates. Uh, actually, sent the resignation letter. Said I'm no longer doing it. Uh, I didn't try to milk my check as long as I could. I just resigned, and I'm starting all over. And. Um, you know, we were in a situation then where you know, making twenty, twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars a month if I didn't leave the house or not. And I, I left and started over about a year and a month before I actually met and heard Richard Nyhart for the first time. And I never will forget uh after our first year with New Image International, we started with that company. Uh, you know, after our first year, we had 11 people that were going to make a six figure income that had never been involved in network marketing before. And the word started getting out, and people were starting to hear about us. And I remember a guy called me. Uh, And I had several calls like this, and my response was always the same. Uh, You know, they would say, you know, my name's so-and-so. Do you know who I am? And normally I didn't, and I'm from so-and-so, and and I have 3,000 people on my team. I have 10,000 people on my team. I have 34,000 people on my team, and we're looking for a new company, and we would like for you to fly us in so we can take a look at what you all have going on. And my response was always the same. Uh, we're not. We don't fly anybody in. If you want to if you would like to set a time to come by and take a tour and sit down and talk, I'll be happy to talk with you. But I'm not flying anybody in. If you want to come and take a look, come and take a look. I mean, I, I just didn't care. And my uh, the the owner at the time had. I always said, well, Dale, maybe we should fly some of these people. I mean, I, I'm not. Pl- I'm not going to work with somebody. That, I'm not. No, well, I'm not doing it. And I was always. You have to choose your battles, and that was always one of my battles. Well, one guy had made this call probably a month or so before, and I told him, look, we don't fly anybody in. We're not going to fly you in. You're welcome to come. Well, he had come about a week before that, and. Uh, Went through the home office, met all the staff, did a home office tour, and so on and so forth. And and uh, when we were sitting down at the table in our office and we were talking, and he and he was saying different things. And and one of the things that I'll never forget, he said, "Now, what our team does is we only show that we sit down with people and show them how they can make money with the business opportunity." We don't talk a lot about the products, and some of you may or may not know, we had one of the first Chromium Piclum a ephedra-based products to ever hit the market, and we were booming, just absolutely booming, and because we were teaching people how to retail to recruit and get the product in the marketplace, and it was a novelty, and it worked, and it was one of the first in the market, and we were just killing it. Huge growth, people making retail profits. Imagine that. Imagine that. They were buying by the case 12 for a case for $290 or $210 when they sold it. They were collecting 360 or something, making $100 for every case that they retailed or 12 bottles or whatever it was back then. I don't remember the exact numbers, but we were killing it. And this guy's saying, Well, we just show people the business. And, and I looked at him and I said, We'll call him Frank. I said, Frank. How long have you been involved in the? Well, I've been I've been involved longer than you have, Dale. Blah blah blah. And that's all right. How long? How many companies have you been? I've been with seven companies. So could you do me a a favor, Frank? And I slid over a piece of paper. I said, Could you write down your top five people, uh, their phone number, and how much money they've made their top their top month, and and only write down the people that have made at least ten thousand dollars. He said, well, I've never really had anybody that's made $10,000. I said, really? How long have you been involved? Well, what about, just write down the ones that have 5000 Well, Well, I've never, I had a, I've had got some really good people, but my top five guy probably made 4000 So, I got a picture pretty quick of this guy. You know, he he got to the top, didn't know what he was doing, didn't know how to train people, didn't know how to develop teams. He didn't understand the real product was people. He was totally focused on the income and the money. And uh, when his business stabilized, normalized, started dipping down, he made a deal with another company, took his people, and he'd done that seven times. That was who I was dealing with. And that, unfortunately, is the uh, the majority. And back then, even, much less today. So he had come and looked and we'd had the conversation and I was cordial, but it's like, I've always believed it's just important to get rid of the wrong people as it is to keep the right people. I just believe that. It's just a fundamental belief that it's not going to change for me. And... Uh, so he left and he said, "Oh, well, I have three or four more companies to visit or I, I can't remember what he said. And I thought, well, I'll never hear from this guy again. And it was fine. So right before we were getting ready to fly out for Vegas, this guy calls and he said, Dale, we've looked at everything. We looked at all the options and we've decided, you know, we're going to join with you guys at New Image and I need to talk to you about bridge money. And I said, bridge what? He said, bridge money. And I said, well, I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with that term. What's bridge money? You don't know what bridge money is? How long have you been involved? And, you know, he's trying to be degraded. I said, look, I don't know what it is. I'm getting ready to catch a plane. What are you talking about? He said, well, I need a guarantee of $10,000 a month until my commissions get to that point. So, like the first month, we'll put three or 4,000 people in. And by, by my calculations, my check should be about Probably six or seven thousand. So I'll need you guys to make up the other three or four thousand until my commissions are over ten thousand dollars. That's bridge money. And I said, Well, it ain't happening here, it's not going to happen. We don't do that, we don't do fly ins. And that's probably why I don't know what you're talking about with bridge money. But bridge money is not going to happen with us. And I hung up. And we, we get on the plane and my uh, the owner said well, what what was that talk about what kind of money bridge money what was that what, what who is that and and I said it's the guy that I did the tour with you know week or so ago and oh yeah he said maybe we should do that with him I said I'm not doing it we cannot do that. You don't that's not how you build a real business with real products and real pe you just don't do it that way. Homegrown leaders is the answer. It's not trying to you know coup somebody or court somebody and give them bridge money. If they're as good as they say they are, they'll they'll he'll get to that income level anyway. And that was the conversation that we were having on the plane. And you know, uh, Some of you probably realize that bridge money is kind of common today. Uh, I've never, I've never, we never gave bridge money and I never accepted it. And there hasn't been over the last, you know, 15 years, every year I'll have six, seven, eight people that are getting ready to start a company want me to become a master distributor and the bridge money will be this amount and your sign-on bonus will be this amount. And I've had those conversations and people contact me and I've never, ever done that and would not do it because, again, if you're good enough, if you know what you're doing, you you don't need that. I don't want that. I wouldn't ask anybody for it. And I wouldn't, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't work with anybody that offers it. So that's, that's my feeling. I know I'm the minority, but again, that's where I, that's what I believe. And some of, you know, at the time of this recording, um, you know, about 20, 25% of our business time, uh, we we've discovered a new technology that we think is going to get way, 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 way outside the network marketing box as a network marketing compensation plan. But when I saw the tech and I understood the market and I understood the upside and I understood the trend, uh, I had to put get involved in some level. And it's, it, you know, we have too many other projects going on. But it's it's I'm trying to make it more and more and more of a focus. And, you know, it was like last week. The only reason Dale there is because they gave him a big sign on bonus and blah, blah. And it's like it just makes me want to throw up and and, and just spew on somebody because I it, it just amazes to me. The people that will talk about that, which they know nothing about, that has absolutely no basis in reality at all you know people try to to I mean I understand throwing people under the bus and deserve it I do I have no problem with that I don't care if we're talking about family members or politics or network marketing or any kind of business if they deserve it and you have your facts in order but just to spew stuff to try to cover up your Uh, weaknesses I have no tolerance for so I set all that up to say this I've had this conversation with the owner uh, and honestly at that point I just I just want to do what's best for all the people in the field and and the company Because I believe you take care of the goose that lays the golden egg. I believe that. And the way I had structured my organization, I was the first distributor in that company. And I looked at the comp plan that the owner had come up with. And I said, well, all I need is five people to reach the top. And I only enrolled five people. And everything else I stacked under those people. Because you can have anything in life you want if you help enough other people get what they want and I just you know a lot of people want to keep it high and tight and keep the money close to them and I just think it's shallow thinking or greed Uh, shallow thinking greed or ignorance you know just not understanding because to me I'm going to stack six-figure earners on top of six-figure earners on top of six-figure earners and I'll sponsor a lot of people but I'm stacking them which I think is just makes more sense. You know, because, again, everything that we've done, everything we teach is about long-term. That's what I believe, long-term. Uh, if, if you're building for next month's BB, you're, 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 your thinking's off. But at the time, and again, this was 1995, we're flying out to the MOM International Association meeting. Didn't know a darn thing about it. But somebody, it's a jaw to come out and they, you know, so it's okay, we'll go to Las Vegas and go to this MLMIA event. And I knew there were some very credible people Bob, like Doris Wood, who's been around forever, is an icon, a legend, and some others. And uh, so I said, okay, we'll go. And we decided to go. So I had this conversation with this guy before I got on the plane, and we're talking about it the whole time. And I'm really starting to doubt. Because I'm thinking, okay, if we bring in five of these big players and they each bring in, uh, you know, 10,000 people because we were getting these calls at this time, not not as much as we got them later on. Later on, we got them daily. But even in the early days, we were getting these calls. And I thought, okay, if I stick them at the bottom of five different organizations and that's going to help everybody all the way up and maybe I should, maybe we should consider it. But, but in my heart, I saw, it's like, I, that's just a can of worms that I don't want to, I don't want to open up. And, uh, so I told the guy no, and I was conflicted at the time because my belief has always been you build people, people build the business. Uh, homegrown leaders, um, you know when you see somebody and you help them develop the right mindsets and the right skill sets and help them get enough courage to take action and move forward, and then they walk across the stage as a rank promotion. there's nothing quite like that in this profession. You know there's no profession that gives you that uh, the ability to make a positive impact on other people like network marketing from that perspective especially when you take somebody that has never done anything but, but punch a clock. It's phenomenal. I love it. I, I've said many times, the only profession that I think could be more it's significant uh, would probably be, you know, someone that's in nonprofit or ministry. Uh, that can be very significant, I'm sure. But that's the power. That's what I love about network marketing because I know personally what it did for me. And because I know I can do it. I know other people can do it if they get their mind right and, you know, go to work. So I was in that state and we went and this was a, this, I was on a Saturday, the event. And we went through breakout sessions and group sessions for a weekend. And honestly, honestly. I'm sitting there thinking this has been a 100% waste of my time. That's what I thought, because it was pretty much people that were trying to promote their trinket or their software or their book uh, to network marketers who saw this as a huge niche And they had a trinket that would help people explode their business. You know, some things never change, I don't guess. And that's kind of was my feeling. And I'm sitting there and it's like, you know, we fly out tomorrow, I know where I want to go eat tonight. Let's just go eat, forget this. And I thought, well, this Richard Neihart guy, maybe, you know, let's just, he's the last speaker, so let's listen to him. But he's, you know, he's a motivational speaker. And, you know, as he says, as you'll hear here in just a minute, he said, you better be very good or very short. But long story short, that's the first time I ever heard Richard Nyhart. And he talks about, as you will hear, just truth, wisdom. And... The two main points that he makes is where I so was at that time and place in my life. And that was, you, your people have to have reasons. They have to know, have to have strong, undeniable, I will not be denied reasons for doing the business if they're going to have a prayer of making it. You all have heard me say a thousand times, until you know why, the how does not matter. And then, then, if they have strong reasons, you have to give them a system to follow. You can't say, go sick them. You know, just go get them. If you need any help, you just let me know. You know, it's it's not the go get them, go sick them training program. And you have to be accessible to people. And the title of his talk was not, reasons in the system, but it was reasons in the system, which were the fundamental beliefs that I had, uh, since 1983. And even when we were in management in the insurance business after Shockley, you know, my team was the most productive team of 10 people in the country right behind New York and California because they had a tape of the month and they had their reasons why and and everything that I believed in, reasons in a system with a foundation and to hear this guy that I never had heard of and hear what he had to say that day I'll never forget it it was uh, confirmation times 10 for me at that point in time in my career and I think it sometimes it's just good to hear other people, other people and reasons in the system is the name of this talk. Uh, I was in Kentucky um, two or three weeks ago in our warehouse and I found the audio and I cannot believe that I found it. And it is an absolute pleasure, absolute pleasure to share with you one of the best speakers that I have ever heard in my life and that most people have never had the opportunity to hear, uh, sharing with you reasons in the system. Uh, My friend that has passed on uh, way too soon, uh, the one and only Richard Nyhart. Enjoy. I'll be back with you when we finish up. Thank
1: you, Mike, and good afternoon. Wow, what a pleasure it is to be in Las Vegas. It's my honor to be standing before you. It'll take me a second to get hooked up here. I would like to take just a moment to express my thanks to the Multi-Level Marketing International Association for this honor. I was uh, privileged to speak to this group last year, and to have been asked once was an honor to be asked the second time is a big surprise and a thrill. And uh, I want to take just a moment to acknowledge some people who in the past year have become not only uh, working associates, but uh, personal friends. Of course, Mike Sheffield, who is the president of uh, the MLMIA. Thanks, Mike, uh, for your very kind introduction. Wow hardly wait to hear what i got to say. Uh, I want to acknowledge this very beautiful lady right over here. Doris, I want you to stand. Just stand up for a second. Doris Wood. Uh, I love you. appreciate you. Yes. And I see uh, several familiar faces. Uh, Fred, it's nice to see you. It's good to see Keith Legas. And, uh, the different ones that we met last night. Uh, how many of you have never seen me before now. Let me see your hand. Well, so much for being famous. I guess that means you're gonna need a couple of minutes to look me over. Can you hear me? If I move away from this, can you hear me? Start talking to this. How are we doing? We all right? Okay, y'all gonna need a couple of seconds to look me over. I, I understand that. If I had never seen myself, I'd want to look me over too. Uh, very brief biography, I uh, began life at a very, very early age, and as time progressed, I grew older, and this is how I turned out. Uh, <laughs> I work in the field of entrepreneurial assessment and development. I spend a lot of time with people like you, and trust me, I've been looking you over. It doesn't take me long to make up my mind anymore. I like you. There's not one person here this afternoon that I wish would leave. I want you all to stay right where you are. I know something about your hopes. I know something about your dreams. I know that you have guts and gumption. I know that you have intelligence and integrity. I know that you are self-selected strivers. You are the great American dreamers. What I know about you makes me want to give you the very best that I have to give i'm going to step down off this podium here uh, as we kind of get acquainted uh, you'll find that i tend to direct most of my questions in my uh... comments to people who sit in the back of the audience uh... please don't be alarmed most of my questions are quite simple uh, well i'm really hooked up here aren't i um, why don't some of you towards the back and i know you've been in meetings all day how many of you been in meetings all day long and you're thinking this guy better be either real good or real short <laughs> yeah uh, to kind of get acquainted here, those of you towards the back, why don't some of you tell us uh, your name, uh, let's see, your age, how much you weigh, and maybe how much money you made last year. Who would like to be first? You're looking at me like a cow looks at a new gate. All right, you don't have to do that, but what I would like for you to do is tell us your name and, and listen carefully, if you knew. If you knew it were going to be your last meal, what would you want to eat? Please don't look at me in that tone of voice. There's a reason for this. Uh, let's go ahead and get started with this handsome guy in the in the plaid shirt and the great-looking Argyle socks. Keep an eye on those socks, Bud. I might walk off with them. Your name, sir? I'm Richard, and your name? Brian. Brian? Yeah. Nice to meet you, Brian. Brian, if you knew it were going to be your last meal, what would you want that meal to be? Where? What? He's thinking. It's going to take a long time to think. Lobster. All right. Fine. You can be seated. Thank you very much. I had one lady say, Richard, I've been allergic to shrimp all of my life. If I knew it were going to be my last meal, I would eat all of the shrimp I could possibly eat because, after all, it's the very worst that could happen to me. Yeah. Let's try somebody else here. Uh, hey, Dave. Uh, let's see. Where do I saw Dave somewhere. Uh, let's try just... So maybe in the in the pretty purple right here. She's not even looking at me. Yeah, right there, you. I'm Richard. What's your name? On the back row. Yes. What is your name? Uh, Margaret. 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 I'm delighted to meet you, Margaret. I'd come back and shake your hand, but they've got me tied here to this uh, thing, so I'm not going to be able to move <laughs> around too much. <laughs> Golly, look at this. Can we get a little more rope here? I think y'all they didn't know who they're dealing with when they uh, <laughs> hooked this thing up. If you knew it were going to be your last meal, what would you want that meal to be? Come on. Peking duck? <laughs> okay, alright, alright. I hadn't thought of that. Uh, hey Rod, how about you sir? You knew it were going to be your last meal. This guy's a, a helicopter pilot, brought his helicopter pilot jacket. Rod Cook. All the three antioxidants that are on the market because I live forever. Oh one in every crowd one in every crowd yeah yeah alright now be honest with me how many of y'all in the last couple of seconds have had it kind of pass through your mind what it is you'd eat if you knew it were going to be your last meal come on raise your hand I'm going to count to three and on the count of three I want everybody all at the same time to just shout it out are you ready here we go one two three alright whoa you're wondering why in the world is a man asking questions like that here's why Here's why. Psychologists say that if you will think about food just prior to a learning experience, that you will retain more information. So you see what I've just done for you. <laughs> How many of you thought of seafood or some variety of seafood? Let me see your hands. Psychologists say you are predominantly left brain. You tend to be more logical, more analytical. How many of you thought of beef or some recipe that includes beef? Could I see your hands, please? Psychologists say you are predominantly right brain You tend to be more intuitive, more creative, more passionate. I many you didn't think of either one? Let me see your hands, please. All right. Well, uh, psychologists say you have no brain. But that's okay. I, I brought pictures. Yes, sir. Mic up a could I move the mic up a little? Okay. How, why don't I just put it on my tie here? How's that? Yeah, maybe, Phil, you could give me a little more rope here. That's right. We don't want to just spend too much time right up here. You're going to find that I don't just say it, I spray it. You get the feeling like you might be at SeaWorld after a while. That's right, so we need to kind of spread it around a little bit. There, that's better. That's better. All right. When you The great English novelist Charles Dickens took up his pen to write The Tale of Two Cities. He opened with these words. They were the best of times, and they were the worst of times. That simple statement paints a perfect picture of the American economy. We are living in the best of times. Statistically, it is easier for an average American to become a millionaire today than at any time in history. Studies show there is a new millionaire created every 52 minutes In this country. We are living in the worst of times. Statistically, it is harder to find a job today, a good-paying job today, than at any time in our history. And it's more difficult for a person to get by on an hourly wage today than at any time in our history. We have developed a whole new economic subclass that we call the working poor. Men and women, husbands and wives, parents holding down at least one, sometimes two, even three jobs and are still not able to keep pace with the demands of living in this country. Why this study and contrast, this dichotomy, the worst of times and the best of times, is due largely to a massive global economic shift. This is by no means the first global economic shift that our world has seen. Tracing back far enough in history, we are able to identify at least four world economies. The first was an economy that was based on hunting and gathering. Our ancient ancestors lived off the land. They followed herds. They dug up roots. They gathered nuts and berries. The business model for their economy was hunting and gathering. In time, people began to settle down. They learned to till the ground. They learned to plant crops in deliberate rows. They learned to cultivate and to harvest, and in so doing, they created a new economic model. What did we call this economy? Anybody? We called it agriculture. And for most of the world's history, our economy has been built on agriculture. In fact, as recent as the turn of this century, 90% of America's economy was built into agriculture. As of November 2016, 1995 what percentage of America's workforce is involved in agriculture 2.5 percent from 90 percent at the turn of the century to 2.5 percent in the last five years of the century would you agree with me this is a major global economic shift where did everybody go they left the farms and they moved to the cities to work where in the factories and what did we call this new economy we called it industry. Industry reached its peak in 1945, when 50% of the American workforce was involved in manufacturing. Why 1945, anybody? World War II. After World War II, manufacturing went into a decline. Today, about 22% of the American workforce is involved in manufacturing. Spinning off of and out of manufacturing is a kind of sister industry that we call Today, about 76% of the people working in this country are working in service industry jobs. Travel, health care, insurance, real estate, entertainment. But for the first time since the advent of the service economy, we are seeing a decline. We are seeing these jobs go away. Jobs that are mechanical by nature will be replaced by a machine. Jobs that impede the flow of information will be replaced by computers. Here's an example. For many years the travel industry made their money from the airlines. A 10% commission paid to them on every ticket sold. How many of you have ever used a travel agent? They made money off of that. It was a 10% commission. Last year Delta informed travel agents no more. From now on, we're going to pay you a $50 cap. There was a scream. There was an anguished cry. You can't do this to us. They said it'll never work. Did it work? It certainly did. There's an industry that's on the road. Real estate. Should I decide to move to Colorado Springs, I would locate a realtor. What does this realtor know that I need to know? What information does he have access to that I must have to find a house? He's got access to what we call the multiple listing service. I call the realtor. He picks me up, takes me around the city, shows me the houses. Well, nowadays, we don't have to do that. You can simply tap into the Internet. I want a four-bedroom house, two-and-a-half baths. I want a fireplace, on and on and on. Here's another industry that is on the road few weeks ago, I sat in the office of an estate planning attorney, and he told me that, And interestingly enough, he's going into network marketing. Why is he going into network marketing? He said, I graduated from the University of Mississippi with a doctorate of jurisprudence, and uh, I have made my living in estate planning. It's for years, we created the state plans, living trusts, business trusts, in the same way that Patrick Henry did to the first governor of Virginia. We custom designed them. In time, we created boilerplates, and uh, we would simply finesse and massage them and customize them to the needs of our clients. Nowadays, people are able to buy the software and create their own. In other words, he says, I see the writing on the wall. In time, my job is going to be rendered obsolete. So we've moved from a society of hunters and gatherers. We've moved from that into agriculture, from agriculture into the job. And now we are witnessing the end of the job. The job is a social dinosaur that has outlived its evolutionary purpose. You say, Richard, is there not work left to be done? Of course there is. But how many of you know this work is going to be done differently. Work will not be packaged in eight-hour-a-day jobs. It may interest you to know that the job as defined by the industrial age did not become law until about 1938 under the Franklin D. Roosevelt administration. In years past, work was done differently. It was governed by the clouds, by the rain, by the wind, by the snow. We've become accustomed to this way of working, and I could stand up here and discuss the ethics of the job shift in the same way that we could discuss the ethics of manifest destiny the encroachment of Anglo-European farmers on land once held by the Indians put yourself in the place of the Indian that watched as their buffalo herds were killed off and farms were established in their place well we've watched the farms disappear people moving to the cities and now the jobs are going away. And I wish I could stand here and tell you that we've identified the problem. We'll blame it on overseas competition. We'll blame it on politics. No, it's the job as an entity. It's the job as a way of doing work. That's what's going away. I was on a flight from Phoenix to Atlanta a few weeks ago. Sitting next to me was Bonnie King, the president of the American Society of Artists, composers, and musicians. She said, Richard, the last two years have been the most difficult in my life. I was faced with laying off, discharging 100 of our employees. She said, it's one thing to discharge someone because of incompetence or dishonesty. But when you have to sit and look into the face of someone who's done everything right, and not only are they a loyal employee, they are a trusted friend. And you have to tell this trusted friend you no longer have a job. She says, I can't eat, I can't sleep. I've cried more in the last two years than I have in the past. Uh, 20 years. Uh, Again, we could talk about the ethics. What about the ethics of uh, nuclear power and the ethics of dropping an atomic bomb on Hiroshima? Do you understand that what we're talking about here is the evolution of an economy? Each time a more effective culture, a more effective lifestyle, a more effective economy arises, it takes the place of the one that was there before. So the jobs are not coming back. That's the bad news. The good news is that there's a whole new economy being born, even as I speak. This economy is not driven by curve or crops or machinery or service. This economy is being driven by innovation, by personal initiative, and by the entrepreneurial spirit. We've nicknamed it the idea economy, and we are on the cusp of this economy this economy uh, is here it's happening all around us how many of you know these changes are taking place absolutely raise your hand yeah no, how about, yeah not at me right okay just want to make sure you're with me I know it's been a long day here uh, this economy is uh, all about the preparation the packaging and uh, the presentation of ideas ideas, in new and interesting ways. And as far as I'm concerned, network marketing is the ultimate business model for the idea economy. It's the greatest economic opportunity in the history of the world. There's a new home-based business being started in this country about every 30 seconds. uh, In fact, uh, Business Week did did a study on this uh, it's called Rethinking Work. They state that the economy is changing. Jobs are changing. The workforce is changing. Is America ready? How many of you believe that America is ready? That you are ready? The people that are in your organization are ready. I submit that by and large, we are not ready. This is the challenge that I have dedicated this part of my life to, preparing people for the challenges of the idea economy. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about for just a little while. But before I do that, I want to give you my definition of wisdom. And you can write this down. Wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. Wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. You've heard it said that knowledge is power. I submit that knowledge is potential power. How many of you know somebody that can discuss intelligently almost any subject from politics to prunes, but their personal and professional life is going absolutely nowhere? I mean, they cannot pass the milk without giving you a dissertation on the history of the dairy industry. They are masters of trivial pursuits. They have got every self-help book ever written. They can call off the names of Napoleon Hill and Maxwell Maltz and augmandino as if they were old family friends and yet they're still driving a 20 year old car and they can't pay their lot bill would you agree with me it really doesn't matter so much what you know as what you can do with what you know wisdom is knowledge rightly applied yeah go ahead and clap you're going to clap clap right yeah do it i speak a lot better i'll help you out yeah yeah that was pretty good but i think we can do a whole lot better so i'll give you a chance to kind of warm up here i live in arizona uh most of you live uh, or think of Arizona as cactus country which it is uh the land of the giant sawar the octio and uh, the cholla but interestingly enough i'm about 90 minutes from the largest ponderosa pine forest in the world i want you to picture a picnic scene up on the mogollon Rim. In the center of the campsite is a fire. Been burning for a couple of days, and around that campfire is a four-year-old, and his name is Perry. And for the past two days, we've been keeping a watchful eye on Perry so that he doesn't venture too close to the flames. Well, now the picnic's over, and the fire has died out, and Perry's creeping closer. And once again, somebody reaches out, grabs him by the seat of the britches, and pulls him back and says, Perry, don't get too close. Just because the flames have gone out, the rocks are still hot, if you touch him, you'll be burned. Now, what would you expect from a four-year-old? Is he going to look up with eyes filled with appreciation and say, I want to thank you for that? <laughs> Chances are, had you not apprised me of the potential danger, I would have inadvertently laid my hands on the stones and then burned. Is that what you'd expect from a four-year-old? Now, what has Perry got to do? Perry's got to touch the rocks, and now Perry has wisdom burned into the tips of his fingers. I submit that wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. Now, the wisdom that we're going to share with you here this evening is going to come in one of two forms. The first is what I call an aha. Everybody say aha. What's an aha? One guy said, that means you got the right one, baby. I said, excuse me. He said, you know the Diet Pepsi commercial? You got the right one, baby? Uh Uh-huh. I said, no, sir, this is not an aha. This is an aha. What's an aha? The light bulb went on. It's an enlightenment. Aha! Second form of wisdom I call a wow. Everybody say wow. What's a wow? A wow, at least in this context, is the proof source that validates the aha. In other words, you take the bright idea out of the context in which it was received, you put it in the bracket, you plug her in and watch her work, and when you can't help but just go... Now, I submit that everything you hear in this conference really works. We didn't think this stuff up last night. These are time-tested strategies that have energized the lives of thousands of people. How many of you know that success secrets really aren't secrets? No, they've been around for the longest time. I remember back in, I won't tell you how long ago, somebody gave me a vintage copy of Think and Grow Rich. It dated all the way back to 1940. I flipped through those pages and I thought, oh, my Lord, it's too late. This has been around since 1940. They beat me to it. That was 20 years ago. I meet people every day that never heard of Think can Grow Rich, never heard of Napoleon Hill, Have never unearthed these treasures of the power of transforming thought into its spiritual and its material equivalent. And, Doris, the longer I live, the more amazed I become at how surrounded we are by nuggets of gold that can be transformed into almost anything our hearts desire. They're laying there at our feet and we've never even recognized them. Now, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the ahas. There's maybe a couple of wows, but i got to tell you this. Most of the payoffs in life don't come as ahas. How many of you know that? Yeah, they don't come as as bright ideas. How many of you all came here to make a lot of money? Let me see your hands. Come on. How many of you came here to be successful in your lives? Let me see your hands. I hate to break it to you, but it ain't gonna happen. (laughs) Not here. Oh, don't look at me like that. It's gonna happen. It was Thoreau who said the person that advances confidently in the direction of their dreams and endeavors to live the life they have imagined, they will meet with a success that is unexpected in common hours. I submit that you'll not only realize your dreams, but you're going to be kicking yourself in the pants because you didn't do it sooner. Your dreams are going to come true, but they're not going to come true in a seminar. They're not going to come true in a symposium. You can spend the rest of your life going from one workshop and conference to another, become a hardcore junkie on success, and still never advance in the direction of your dreams. When do the real payoffs come, folks? It comes when we take this information and we go out into the real world and make a real world application. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about some things that it's going to take for not only us, but for the people in our organizations to prepare themselves for the challenges of the idea economy. And when I say that we're really not ready, I'm saying that based on the fact that we're coming out of the industrial age and there's not a whole lot, Clinton, in our past that has prepared us for the challenges of self-employment. How many of you came up through the public school system? Let me see your hands. We sat there, rows of little heads, blonde heads and red heads and brown heads and we had teachers that yakety-yak and filled our heads with information we were taught according to an age-old system called rote, goes back to the latin rota which means to spin. this is where the term universe and university came from and that's ah, a whole different seminar but it was just around and around and around and 98 percent of everything we learned we forgot within the first 72 hours we graduated. See, makes you feel pretty good knowing that 72 hours after you got your diploma, you forgot just about everything that you learned. Yeah, we got the diploma. We got the degree. We went on to get the job. We got our job with a certain set of assumptions. That assumption was shaped by the industrial age from the 40s and the 50s. Like Grandpa and like Daddy, I'm going to get on with the company, and if I do my job and just keep showing up after 30, 40, 50 years, I'm going to get my gold watch and my pension, a kick in the seat of the pants, going to buy a camper. Me and the missus is gonna head to Lake Louise and die. <laughs> yeah. In the 70s it was how far and how fast can I go up in my job? In the eighties, it's how can I keep my job? In the nineties, it's oh god, am I ever gonna find another job? And so the whole paradigm has shifted. And we're seeing people saying, all right, if that's the way you're going to be, I'll just go into business for myself. And so they're going into business for themselves, but they're going into self-employment with a job mentality. How many of you understand what I'm talking about? Everybody say, goodbye job. job. Hello, me. That was pretty good, but I think you can do better. Goodbye job. job. Hello me. Hello, me. Wonderful. Now, I'm not suggesting anybody get up, rush to the phones, call your boss and tell him to shove it. you got a job, you probably want to hang on to it. But it's time we understand that the ground rules are changing. And we must learn to recognize and adapt to these changes and to embrace new technologies and to emulate or model the success that's of those that have gone before us. Eighty-four percent of the American workforce today requires a controlled environment to be productive. Now, you executive directors, you organization leaders, you've got to understand that the people that are in your organizations are coming out of the industrial age. Their whole concept of work has been shaped by the industrial age. You get up, you go to work, you put in your eight hours, you come home, grab a bud, head to the living room, sit down and watch The Simpsons. 84% 84% of the American workforce requires a controlled environment to be productive. That means if you got a job that takes five people, you've got to make one of them a boss to tell the other four what to do because if they don't have a boss, they're going to sit there on that dead eddy and wait until somebody tells them it's all right. Yeah. 14% can be put on assignment left alone to follow through with a minimum of supervision, but only 2%. Only 2% can actually plan their own work. And what we're seeing now are people by the hundreds of thousands. In fact, there are now almost 40 million home-based businesses in this country. According to Link Research out of New York, there are almost 40 million tax-paying entities that are based out of their home. Within the next 15 years, half of the people in this country will be working out of their home. And most of those people are going to fail unless they come to understand the dynamics of personal management. That means that I must organize within so that I can organize from without. In other words, we've got to have a system. How many of you ever eaten at McDonald's? How many of you will admit to have ever eaten at McDonald's? (laughs) Does McDonald's make the best burger you've ever tasted? Horrible. You know, it doesn't matter where I ask that question, Carol, I can ask it in Fairbanks or Philadelphia, I get the same answer every time. That vigorous shaking of the head, that emphatic, unequivocal, no. Why do they sell so many? How could a organization that specializes in hamburgers that are so distasteful (laughs) (laughs) sell so many? Huh? They've marketed an idea? I hear french fries, I hear apple pies, I hear ramen, why why do they sell so many? They have a system. Jay said it, this gentleman right here, they have a system. It doesn't matter if you get a a Big Mac in Seattle or Sri Lanka, it's going to taste the same. That doesn't say much, but it will taste the same. I submit that if you have a system, if the people in your organizations have a system, they don't have to be the brightest. They don't have to be the most beautiful. You can watch them go stand there scratching your head and say, that gal's down with a box of rocks. I don't know how she does it. But if you have a system that you understand, if you have a system that you not only understand, but you have a reason for making it work, you're not only going to realize your dreams. You're going to surpass them. If you all got a good look at this jacket, it's hotter than an old folks home in here. I'm going to turn it off or take it off. I don't know what's going to happen with these cords and stuff. You doing all right? Yeah, that's it, Doris. I have to show off my trendy suspenders here. It's Christmas time, and I knew Doris like (laughs) that. That's right. All right. Now, I'm going to give you an aha right now if you want to go ahead and write this down. Let's talk a little bit about time. It was Benjamin Franklin who said, to love life is to love time because time is the stuff that life is made of. How many hours did we have when we were born? Any guesses? The day you came into this world all red and wrinkled, bawling and squalling. How many hours had life bequeathed upon you? 25,000 hours. And that is all. And I don't see any newborn babies in here, which means we spend a whole lot of those hours and we don't have many of them left. And if we're going to create our dreams, they're going to have to be created within the context and the confines of the hours that we have left. Let's talk a little bit about managing those hours. In fact, we can't really manage them. There is no such thing as managing time. How many of you know that we cannot manage time? Can't do it. One person knows that. The rest of you are thinking, well, can we stop the sun from from rising? Can we stop it from setting? We can't. You can't speed it up, you can't slow it down. Time, ladies and gentlemen, is little more or less than a continuum of events. The continuum of events that move from the past into the present and on into the future. Time is simply a dimension in which things change. And so, rather than talking about time control, it's very important that we talk instead about event control. Now, while I'm on the subject of control, what are some areas of our lives over which we have absolutely no control? Can you think of a few areas of our lives over which we have absolutely no control? Sleeping? You can't control? Okay, so we're talking about the need for sleep? Okay. Some of us need more than others? Um... Okay. So those would be basically our physiological needs. Okay. For food. Okay. Uh, We we cannot, okay, need for this. Okay. Air. All right. We're getting pretty basic here. Yeah. What are some other areas we cannot control? Weather. All right. We cannot control the weather. Some other areas we cannot control? Other people. That's interesting. Can we or can we not control other people? No. We can? We can't. We can't? I used to think I could. What's your name, sir? Jim? Jim, I used to think I could control other people by the sheer force of my personality. And then I became a father. (laughs) Have you ever tried to feed a one-year-old baby girl cream cheese? There she sits all but immobilized in a hot chair looking up at me as if to say, don't even think about it. You don't need them? I don't need them. I'm looking down at this child, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and everything on the inside of me. says, you will eat the cream peas. I am your father. I am 26 years older than you. I outweigh you by 100 and none of your business. You will eat the cream peas. Now, my left brain reasons there are only two ways this child can breathe. One is through her nose, and the other is through her mouth. If I plug one, the other has to open. So, I plug her nose, and predictably enough, her mouth pops open. And in one fluid motion, I insert the pea. Now, I am a compassionate man, and I love my daughter very much. But I am determined to impose my will on her. So I take my fingers from her nose, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. now I forced this baby to eat the cream peas. No, I have not. Three and a half seconds later, I remove my hand and learn the meaning of jet propulsion. And it still amazes me how that a little tiny spoonful of cream cheese can cover a grown man from his eyebrows all the way down to his knees. We cannot control our need for sleep. We cannot control our need for food, uh, airway. We certainly cannot control the attitudes and the behaviors of other people. Now, I don't know about food. I was uh, out in Texas doing a seminar, and we've gone on food. You know, you can't control what you eat. And, and, and I, I was saying you could, and the guy on the front row is just shaking his head vigorously. And uh, I said, "Excuse me, sir, you 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 cannot control what you eat." Uh, he said, "No." I said, "Well, sure you can." He said, "You need to meet my wife." <laughs> he said, "Half the time I don't even know what she puts on my plate, but I eat it." I said, "But you don't have to." He bumped the guy next to him and said, "He needs to meet my wife." <laughs> There's a lot of things we cannot control, but it might amaze you to know that we spend about 80% of our time attempting to control what we cannot control. How many of y'all can relate? And how does it make you feel? Yeah. What does it do to your stress level? Yeah, I was doing an event in Oakland, California about two years ago in the Oak Park Hotel I was on the 16th floor of the Oak Park Hotel from my window I could take in one of the most beautiful cityscapes in the civilized world there was the Golden Gate Bridge the Oakland Bay Bridge the Transamerica Pyramid it was absolutely gorgeous but on my window was the deposit made by one of the ...multitudinous pigeons that environed nearby. Figure that one out. I'm sitting here trying to take in this beauty... ...and yet all I can see is that little white streak. (laughs) How many compulsive cleaners do we have here? I'm on the 16th floor. I can't get to it, but it's got to go. It's just got to go because it's obstructing my view. It is taking what would be... A perfect situation and turning it into something less. It's got to go. But it ain't going. So I just finally sat back in my chair and had to come to terms with this thing. How many of you know there's certain things we're just going to have to come to terms with? Yeah. You either ha- have a problem, you're living with the problem, or you are the problem. <laughs> <laughs> And there's some things that we just simply have to adapt to. Now, what are some areas that we can control? Over what do we have total control? Help me out here. Ourselves. Can you think of anything else? That's just about it, folks. And the reason that I'm pointing this out is because many of us, for the first time in our lives, are going into business for ourselves. I was on a flight with an executive from an aeronautics firm, and as we flew along, uh, we broached the subject of of self-employment, he asked me, Richard, what is the greatest challenge faced by people that are going into business for themselves? And I thought for a moment, and my answer to this executive was, the greatest challenge for these people is thinking of their business as a business. How many of you have seen that? You've made that observation. Yeah, we're swept into this on the tide of emotion. I'm going into business for myself. Goodbye, job. Tell O me. Going to fire my boss. Going to be a millionaire by Tuesday. Yeah. And we just into this thing. And then that first morning of being in business for yourself, and the alarm clock rings, and there you lay. You think an alarm clock? I don't need to get up. I'm in business for myself. Ain't nobody going to tell me when to get up. I'll get up when I want to get up. (laughs) I'll watch TV when I want to watch TV. You start catching up on, you know, the old reruns, and yeah, you're in business for yourself, you know. And it's very important that we think in terms of, how many of you know that going into network marketing is not like getting a lottery ticket? It's not like winning the big one. You know, my mother, she's still waiting to win the big one. I love her. But, you know, every time I talk to her, honey, listen, she'll read the outside of this envelope. And it says, you may already be a winner. (laughs) Mother, that is just the marketing Oh no, honey, listen You're Mr. and Mrs. Nyhart Route 3, box 198 You are one of five people in your county That have been selected I say, Mother, they have contacted every living person (laughs) What makes you think they're going to contact Larry and Margie Nyhart You know, one of If you're one of five people Why did they send you a computerized letter? I mean, they send it What are you going to do with a woman like that? (laughs) She's your mother You're going to love her You're going to be nice to her In case she wins the darn thing, I guess (laughs) It's probably not going to happen. And there are people that are making the sad mistake of waiting until they get the pink slip. They're waiting until they retire, and they're finding out that Ed McMahon ain't going to call. And they're finding out that the Publishers clearing out sweepstakes van ain't going to pull up in front of their house. It's not going to happen. No. And I understand it because I have been affected by this job shift. How many of y'all have been affected by it? At the age of 35, Jim, I thought I had it all put together. Yeah, and then I forgot where I put it. I mean, I looked around and it was gone. And I was broke. I had a business in a trustee sale. I had a house in foreclosure. My luxury car. My beautiful luxury car. It was a power seat. It had power everything. And the power seat broke. And it didn't break. At my length of my legs, it broke right up close to the steering wheel and I couldn't get it fixed. Mr. Hotshot driving around like this to keep the window down to have one elbow free. And I was broke. And I'm in a you it ain't nothing worse than being broke. Unless you're sick. Ain't nothing worse than being broke and sick. Unless you're stupid. There ain't nothing worse than being broke and sick if you're stupid. Unless you ugly. If you're broke and sick and stupid and you ugly, you're really in bad shape. <laughs> but I came to realize that never again would I be able to look at one source of income in terms of security. We started creating... Several separate sources, and that's exactly what network marketing is all about. As far as I'm concerned, it is the greatest opportunity. How many of you believe that this is really the greatest opportunity? Deep down in your heart, this is something that people need to be made aware of. Absolutely. Clap your hands, big and loud, if you believe that. But it's one thing, Jennifer, to declare I'm going into business for myself. As of today, I am self employed. As of today, I can number myself among the business owners of America. I ain't got a pocket, but I am one of the business owners of America. I am now, you know, but it's going to require some changes. And I guess the area that, that Claire and I work in, in fact, right now, Claire wants you to stand up. Everybody turn around. Look at this beautiful lady. This is my partner here. And, uh, you know, she. we got this little sign back there that says, We'll speak for food. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Uh, glad to have her here, but what we have committed ourselves to is empowering and inspiring, preparing. Robert brought one. Robert, one of my very dearest friends, I wouldn't be standing here if it wasn't for this guy. Great suit, Robert. You know that time you showed up at the Marriott and you lost your shirt? I've been telling that story all over the country. Yeah, you're looking at me like I'm going to kill you. That's a great story. Robert lost his shirt, not not metaphorically, literally. (laughs) He shows up and he's... Never mind. Uh, well, oh, we're going into business for ourselves is going to require some fundamental changes. It's going to require things from us that has never been required before. In the past, you have a job. You didn't have to be particularly bright. You didn't have to be particularly beautiful. You just do your job. We've been conditioned to mediocrity. How many of you are sick and tired of mediocrity? And you know there just has to be something more out there. You went into this because you knew there had to be something more. And it's going to require things from us that have never been required. We're going to have to become very proactive. You understand what I mean by proactive? It's an industrial term, and uh, we hear it a lot in management literature. I'm going to show you what I'm talking about here, being proactive as opposed to being reactive. I'm going to do a real quick little paradigm shift, and I realize this is an oversimplification, that I want you to follow along with me here. You're either going to face life as a reactive or a proactive person.
0: Oh, I told you he was awesome. I hope you've enjoyed this. Uh, go find your copy of Think and Grow Rich. This is Dale Calvert. I will be back with you next week on another session of MLMSuccess.com, the podcast, and we will listen to Richard Nyhart, Part 2, Reasons and a System.